Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Good morning, everyone, and good Shabbos. I'm Rabbi Nick Renner. I am in teaching for Rabbi Bernstein's usual podcast here. Uh, And it's a pleasure to be joining all of you this morning. Uh, We are in Parashat Korach. Korach is a, it's a remarkable piece, and it stands in contrast to a lot of the other misbehavior we get from the Israelites. Um, I would suggest, and what we're going to try and play with this morning, is that in some ways, perhaps Korach's rebellion tells us more about Moses and leadership than it does about Korach or the rebels. This is kind of an interesting piece that perhaps we can turn some of the traditional dynamic around this rebellion on its head. So... And they're not rebelling yeah. against God. Well, I mean, directly. Let's see. This is a rebellion against leadership. Let's see what happens. I think you're absolutely right to point out the nuances and subtleties of this particular rebellion. Um, Bert's going to help us out and read a little bit for us. We're going to start out just by reading along verses 1 through 11. We've got a now good chunk. Korach, son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, betook himself along with Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, descendants of Reuben, to rise up against Moses. Here's the rebellion. Together with 250 Israelites, chieftains of the community, chosen in the assembly, men of repute, they combined against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all the community are holy, all of them, and the Lord is in their midst. Why then do you raise yourselves above the Lord's congregation? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Then he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Come morning, the Lord will make known who is his and who is holy, and will grant him access to himself. He will grant access to the one he has chosen. Do this, you Korah and all your band. Take fire pans, and tomorrow put fire in them and lay incense on them before the Lord. Then the man whom the Lord chooses, he shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Moses said further to Korah, Hear me, sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel and given you access to him to perform the duties of the Lord's tabernacle and to minister to the community and serve them? Now that he has advanced you and all your fellow Levites with you, do you seek the priesthood too? Truly, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have banded together. For who is Aaron that you should rail against him? Thank you, Bert. I gave you a, a marathon piece to get through there. I appreciate it. So, this is the outline of the rebellion here. Thoughts, questions, comments. What did we hear? The first time I read this, mm-hmm. I was almost with Korach. Okay. Say more. <laughs> well, I mean, the point he's made, I mean, forgetting about the politics of this, which is a whole other layer of it. Mm-hmm. But just on the surface, he's saying, you know, we all can approach God. Why all of a sudden are you guys, the Korach is saying, you know, why do you think you're closer? Isn't God accessible to everybody? Why are you so special? Isn't the whole, isn't the entirety of the community holy? Thoughts, other responses to it. So, well, yeah, go ahead. God appointed 
leaders. Okay, very good. So we have God appointing leaders in contrast to or in opposition to this idea that everyone is holy, this sort of um, radical democratization of the people here. But elsewhere Mm -hmm. in the Torah, it says, You shall be holy because I am holy. And that's addressed to everybody. Mm -hmm. And clearly there's a sense that the people have... A relationship here, mm. but I think it seems to me that Korah is using this—he's using his argument as a pretext, because mm-hmm. what it really is, I guess, is the Levites against the uh, Kohanim. So let's look you at know? what these two groups represent. What does Moses represent? What is Moses in charge of here? Name something. Moses is probably in charge of it, to put it plainly. Everything. Very good. Moses is in charge of, you know, for putting this in American terms, Moses is the executive, the judicial, and the legislative branches all sort of rolled into one. He's the greatest prophet. And it's not just now. It's not just in this time. We have in the end of Devarim that... Moses is the greatest prophet. Moses saw God El talk to God Panim El Panim face to face. Moses is the greatest prophet ever. So it's not even just this moment, it's forever in that sense. And who's with Moses in the leadership? Aaron. Aaron. What's Aaron in charge of? Operations. Operations. The sanctuary, the COO, I like it. The priesthood. Aaron is the progenitor of the um the line of the Kohanim, the priests, um, and it's his brother. And the priests are by birth. It's this sort of baked-in priestly lineage that's going to have a certain kind of authority here. So we have the leader, we have the leader's brother, and leadership seems to be a hereditary thing through the priesthood. That's an awful lot of power concentrated very, very tightly within this system. Is this a, this a revolution of Levites? So let's go there. What of Korah? Korah seems to have t- tapped into some kind of popular discontent, and he's got this 250 chieftains with him. So my commentary here, my academic JPS commentary, makes the point that this language of uh, Nesie Eda these tribal chieftains we have, the 250 of them, this is the same language we get at the very beginning of the book of Numbers. This is language that they use in the census at the very beginning. This language implies that it's not just the Levites, that it's actually chieftains from across all of the 12 tribes of Israel, that this is truly some kind of popular or democratic or what have you um, revolt going on, that that language implies everyone. But later you have Moses saying to him, I'm looking at the end of verse t- uh, at verse 10, mm-hmm. now that he has advanced you and all your fellow Levites with you, do you seek the priesthood too, as if it were just the Levites? So let's look. We're going to look back at exactly what's said because it's important here. Um, Moses, Korah. We'll start with Korach's charge, what exactly Korach claims, because I want to be really clear in who is saying what here. They combine against Moses. Now we're in in, uh, verse 3 again. You have gone too far. All the community are holy, all of them, and the Lord is in their midst. Why do you raise yourself above the Lord's congregation? Now, we're going to fast forward. What does Moses say? Moses says... Verse 8, 
Moses says further, further to Korah, Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel and given you access to him to perform the duties of the Lord's tabernacle, to minister to the community and serve them? Now he has advanced you and all your fellow Levites with you. Do you seek the priesthood too? Truly it's against the Lord that you and your company have banded together. For who is Aaron that you should rail against him? What's going on here? Could we have two stories intermixed? So this is definitely, there is a long essay that I was looking at last night that talks about how these are possibly two different stories and how there may be historical um, evidence here and there, little scant pieces for some kind of a priestly revolution, potentially in and around the time of the first temple. That's one possibility. Um, I'm going to take it in a slightly different... Yeah, go ahead. Well, wasn't there... uh uh, a big clannish thing with the Aaronites and the, and the Mushites going on as well. Okay. Is this all related, even though it doesn't seem to be? So it's an interesting thing that we have possibly a rebellion against God. Possibly it's a rebellion against Aaron. And it's interesting that Moses separates himself out from uh, this question at the end of here, truly it's against the Lord that you and your company are banded together. Who is Aaron that you're attacking? And Moses seems to actually step out of the equation um, in addressing the rebellion. Other thoughts about this? Yeah. Well, Moses is doing a rather gutty thing here by saying to the Levites, all right, bring your fire pans and your incense and come tomorrow, and God will decide. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not often in the Middle East that a leader dies a natural death. <laughs> it's, uh, he's taking quite a risk doing something like that. It's a bold move in its own way. Moses sort of saying, let's see what happens. Let's roll the dice and see what God does here. Um, Except the author knows how it ends. Well, there's that challenge, too. <laughs> knowing how the story ends, you know. Well, let, uh, for the moment, we'll suspend our... Um, our foreknowledge of what's going to happen here and how this thing goes. Uh, we do have an inconsistency here. Korach states that he and his challenge are about one set of ideals, and Moses says they're about something completely different. Um, besides, is, is Korach saying, yeah. really, look, there was no democratic election that made you leader, and that bothers me. That's what's going on. Certainly one possible drosh to what's going on, uh, that it's a problem with the process by which Moses yeah. ascended to leadership. Sure, you can absolutely uh, interpret it or consider it that way. Um, there's two questions. One yeah. is, should there be a leader at all? But there's always a leader. Every well, no, but, he, but part of what he's saying, Korach is saying, isn't everybody holy? That's not the same. The same. Again, I want to have an election they have a leader chosen by us, mm-hmm. not by something called God. Yeah. Which you say is why you're in power. <laughs> Go ahead, and then... I want to quote even a higher source. My mother said... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Your mother said... All right, this is a very high source, very holy indeed. Let's hear it. One of the differences between Judaism and other religions is that every individual Jew can speak directly to God. But that's one point I want to make, the highest source. The other is that Moses does defer. He says, it's not me. Okay. You know, why Aaron is the guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why, uh, why are you doing it? So that's just uh, not delegation, but mm-hmm. shifting blanks. 
to your, George so, said true back then? So, the, yes, this is exactly where I'm going. To you, uh, your mother's excellent point about Judaism. What we're seeing here, I might distinguish from Judaism as we have it passed down uh, through the rabbinic legacy. What we're seeing here is very much an ancient Israelite worship that is much more tightly filtered through the priesthood. And the relationship of the rank and file with God is much more through sacrifice and through offering and through the rituals and governed by the priesthood. So in this time, yeah, I want to suggest that the destruction of the temple and the rise of rabbinic Judaism did make way for every Jew to have that relationship with God. And what we're seeing here predates that relationship, I want to suggest. So I, I think it's a little bit of a, of a hybrid as, to, as far as that model goes in terms of what the relationship is with God. You're right to point that out, though. This is exactly what Korach is talking about here. Aren't we all holy before God? It's an excellent question. Um, point over yeah go ahead well you know first if it's not one thing it's your mother (laughs) but um isn't it so much that you know is moses saying you guys are not holy i mean what's with this rebellion where they're saying hey aren't we holy why is it moses saying yeah everyone's holy i didn't appoint myself a leader i'm a reluctant hero at best and I can't help it. I was appointed by God, okay? So knock yourself out. But we all are holy. That, Isn't that just the message? That's exactly where we're going to go. Thank you for raising that up. I appreciate it. I'm going to share. If it's your mother. If it's one thing, it's your mother. I love it. So I'm going to share um, a little dvar that I got a couple of days ago from a good friend of mine from when we were 17-year-olds traveling in Israel. He's now a clinical psychologist. And he wrote a wonderful piece. Uh, this is Benny Kajadin, Dr. Kajadin. Um, he wrote a really stunning dvar all about Korach and Moses and why they seem to be talking past one another, why they seem to be asserting different things. Um, it's the psychological piece that comes to bear here. So Korach says all the people are holy. Um, Moses, in turn, makes it about Korach. I'm going to quote my friend Benny here. Moses delivers the bald accusation that Korach has raised the banner of populism merely to advance his own covert agenda of stealing the priesthood and its attendant wealth and honor from the family of Aaron. I knew it. You knew it. The rhetorical function of this move is to infect the listener slash reader's impression of Korach with the most basic form of political cynicism, the suspicion that all who aspire to lead are moved by selfish interests. Wow. No, well, I was 17 when I was buddies with him. He's my age still. We met when we were 17. It'd be pretty sharp for a 17-year-old. No, he's 32 as well. Um, so, But it wasn't just Korak. You know, he had 250 fellow travelers. Correct. Which presumably were all men. Correct. Which meant that they represented the families of probably... About 100,000? I mean, I don't know. No. Was this the whole population revolting, basically? No. It would have been the suggestion here in this language of Nisa'e uh, Eda is that it was a representative group. It was uh, spread across the 12 tribes. It might not have been the entirety of the population, but it wasn't concentrated in one tribe. There was serious discontent. Which Korak may or may not have fed or may have been appointed to lead it. But Correct. You know, clearly, people were aggravated that Moses was the self chosen 
leader. Well, the, weren't the, prior, the prior revolt, if I remember correctly, was specifically everybody. Everybody. Right? The, the, whole, the whole people yeah, yeah. rose up. Mm-hmm. Here it does mention that it's, it's the leaders. That leads me to believe that this really is the story of a political fight yeah. in between the different leadership group, the different leadership factions and the people who got to redact this and edit it could make it so they came out on top. The other point I was going to make that seems crazy to us is the thing about the fire pans. But it's not the only point in the Torah where somehow there's something to be decided and they say uh, it's with... uh, a woman and adultery, isn't it, when they have to drink the water? That's Sotah's story. Yeah, the Sotah story. Uh, that there was a belief way back then mm-hmm. that, you know, if, if, I, if I'm lying, may the heavens open up and right. whatever. This idea of down, divine verification. That, really, that, that, that that was really real. And the um, sure. um, Umam and Thurim, yeah. they used to go look at... Uh, uh, stones and stuff. Or people would, uh, not Jews, but they would go and look at the liver. But thinking that God somehow was manipulating the physical universe and then you could know what God found. All excellent points. I want to stick a but little bit... this resonate also yeah. throughout history because the divine right of kings stems from God? So this isn't just... The authority by which... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. What we see here could well have been the British revolution which removed the power from the king. Sure. So, excellent points all around. And this point about this historically possibly being um, showing us a little bit of some kind of revolt that took place. Um, like I said, we have a couple of essays here that uh, so that would support that and they go into that as a theory. But I want to stick... Um, for purposes of today's conversation, a little bit more closely with Moses and Korah as these figures and what it is that they represent, who they are, and what we can learn from them. Um, my friend Benny has a great idea about why Moses would say these things about Korah that are not on the page, that aren't listed here. Why is Moses making these wild accusations? I mean, because it does sound, if you want to look at this as some kind of a popular revolt, um, that Moses is in fact trying to raise a level of cynicism, a level of disbelief about it to say that no, beneath all of that lofty aspirational language about all of you being holy, you're just out for yourself. Um, it's a pretty cynical thing if you look at it this way. But he's also, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot more besides Korah. Yes. So, one, another way to look at this, and this is a very rabbinic way to look at this, this way that Binny is suggesting, is that let's look at what the Torah isn't saying. And this is where Midrash, this is where the rabbinic voice fills in, because we're constantly looking at all of these things where we're not quite sure how it is that these gaps get filled in. That's, in some ways, the genesis of the rabbinic project is trying to figure out where were these other voices that we ought to be hearing in this? What are the pieces that we should infer from this that we aren't quite hearing? Um, To paraphrase uh, a great jazz musician I once knew, sometimes the notes you don't play are just as important as the notes you do. So, where my friend Benny goes with this, with his uh, psychoanalytical background, is to look at material from Carl Jung, psychoanalytical tools from Jung, and ideas about Jung, where Jung talks about the shadow, 
to understand what Moses is doing here. I see a few heads nodding. Um, anyone with a background in, uh, in certain kinds of psychology. So I am a non-psychologist, so I'm going to quote my friend Binny here to make sure I get it just right. Uh, the shadow, as Jung puts it out, is the repository of all that we prefer not to see about ourselves. That which we do and think and feel, which contradicts our individual sense of ourselves as essentially good people. Typically, in an absence of reflective self-awareness, the unwanted pieces of the psyche collected in the shadow are projected onto and into other people. This allows us to feel secure in the knowledge that we find bad and unacceptable exists out there, out there and not in here, thus permitting to ourselves an ongoing sense of innate goodness and allowing us to find moral superiority. How does this apply to Moses? You're, say, you're saying that Moses... <laughs> <laughs> Benny gets into that actual, that layer of it more overtly than I'm going to today, but we can actually go there toward the end. That's fine with me, but don't be sorry. It's people who we might see on TV. As it turns out, Torah sometimes talks about the world we live in in this day and age. Who knew? Go ahead. Well, I'm yeah. just going to say that Moses, um, that's... Moses maybe is not all that good, all that good about what he's doing and, and how he's projecting himself, and so he's he's saying something, you know, he's throwing this back on Korah. Well, let's look at what are the attributes of Moses. What is the one characteristic we have about Moses? They don't tell us over and over again that Moses is the strongest or the greatest warrior or the greatest orator. What is the thing that Moses is? He's reluctant. He's reluctant. What else is he? He's, he's known humble. as the most humble. Humble. Very good. That's the one thing that gets uplifted over and over again as a quality about Moses. That Moses has the greatest humility. Moses is the most humble. So now, yeah, go ahead. It brings to my mind people who would say, in my humble opinion. <laughs> in my humble opinion, I'm going to tell you how it actually is. <laughs> absolutely. I think you're. that's absolutely right. So... What does someone who is the most humble do? Not this. They go out of their way. Not this. I like that, Bert. Very good. They go out of their way to subvert feelings or expressions of superiority over others. So my friend Dr. Kajadin says we can infer a deep-seated discomfort in Moses with feelings of self-importance. That if Moses truly is the most humble, what's going to be the most uncomfortable for him? His self-importance. That's right. Um, now, my friend Benny goes on to speculate in a very rabbinic sort of way that maybe this is rooted in Moses' childhood, of course. You're surprised to hear my friend, the psychoanalyst, going there. That he goes to the childhood. He doesn't go to the mother, actually. He says that it's perhaps a childhood spent in Egyptian palaces while seeing that his people were oppressed. Um, but I'm going to leave that at the front door here. Yeah, that it's a certain kind of guilt, absolutely, that comes out of his childhood. So another <laughs> another layer of exegesis from my friend uh, Dr. Benny Kajin, but we're going to stick to Korach here. Um, so what does Korach do here? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to back up to Moses and his, how he was humble. And so self-importance would be a quality that's uncomfortable to yes. someone who's humble. Typically, they might be more people pleasers, or you know, have, what do you guys all think? Yeah. But he was given the task 
to leave, mm-hmm. as uncomfortable as it might be. Yeah. So while it doesn't come natural to him, he was given that path. That's right. By you know someone pretty important. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So Moses, the one who is the most humble, the one who is going to be perhaps the least comfortable with self-importance, here has the most important role. It's an opportunity to overcome. It is an opportunity to overcome that, and we're going to see a little shift here, actually. Um, yes, you're absolutely laying out some of the steps we're going to see here. Let's jump back to Yeah, go ahead. It's interesting that the last time, maybe there was another, but the last time I could remember this happened, he didn't have to resolve the situation. God stepped in. Yeah. And that was with Miriam, and happened to be Miriam and Aaron, but... Hold that thought. That's going to be really important, actually, as we look at what progresses here in terms of Moses. Keep that keep that in play in the discussion. You're absolutely right to bring that to the forefront. Um, let's go back to Korach for a second. What does Korach do in his rebellion? He calls out something that's a fact. It's inarguable. Moses does exist in a class by himself. There's no argument to it, basically. There's no leader whose Moses is equal. There's no prophet like him. And as I mentioned, never again will there be a prophet like Moses. Um, Korach just hit Moses with the thing that he's most reluctant to face because he's the most humble, that he's actually the most important. Um, This is that contradiction that you just raised up here, that he's the most humble and yet he's also the most important, um, that Moses has control over them. And, in fact, Moses rages. We see some of Moses' dark side. Moses rages about how stubborn and difficult the people are, and he curses himself for having to be their leader. It's not the most humble thing. In fact, maybe that's some of what Moses is storing in the shadow, if we're holding um, Carl Jung's idea about the things we wouldn't want to see in ourselves. So Moses, so Korach um, has just managed to attack Moses with the one thing that Moses cannot manage to face about himself. In some ways, it's rhetorically and politically kind of a brilliant play. Thoughts, observations about what Korach has done here? I was going to come from the Moses side. Mm-hmm. Is this? Please. <clears throat> there are a series of things that happen that indicate that Moses is losing it mm-hmm. in terms of his ability to lead. This is. And this gets goes, to Robert's point. We're going to look at this. There's a number of different things. Uh, we haven't done the striking of the rock yet. Hold that thought too. No, we're going to get there. Yep. One yet. But um, there, there's the whole question. If Moses is so great, why doesn't Moses continue to lead the people? Why doesn't Moses get into the promised land? Why does Moses have to give leadership to the next <clears throat> to the next generation? So there's a series of things, and maybe what you're saying is Moses is kind of losing his composure. Composure is one piece of it. Um, I also want to suggest, and we're going to continue looking along this line, that part of what's crucial about Moses' just use of power is his ability not to look at the outside, not to look at the threats, not to look at what's opposing him or the people and their difficulty, to look at the land, to look at Amalek, to look at all of these things that Moses has to contend with, but Moses' ability to look at himself and understand himself within the just use of power. He doesn't really engage Korah. He doesn't really engage Korah's argument. He basically says, you know what? God will tell you. But Moses says 
He acts to preserve. He acts to preserve that piece of himself which he can't bear to look at. The shadow, as Jung as Jung puts out to us, he turns it to the other. He says Korach is the one who wants all the power. He says Korach is the one who is too comfortable with his privilege. Korach is the authoritarian, not me. Um, He says that before. He says, and we'll let God. Is that like an outburst? He could have just gone right to, well, let's just. The psychoanalytical term for this would projection. projection, projection. Transference. That's right. Um, that's exactly what we're seeing here in that way. He's taking all of those things which he can't stand to see in himself and putting it on the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why they have someone like Edward G. Robinson playing that. Because <laughs> <laughs> opposed to the Charlton Heston type figure. I mean, it's really true because we want, I mean, Edward G. Robinson plays a bad guy all the time. Okay. They don't put somebody else in there who would look like a great leader who would have. He's like a, a, a constantly discontent. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting. I think the casting director was in your hands. The casting director maybe had it in along the lines of this interpretation. Yeah, go ahead. Is, is, is Moses just torn here saying, I don't really want this job. <clears throat> just give me an out. Bring your fire pants. Just give me an out. I'm, I'm tired, frazzled. All you guys complain all the time. I'm not doing a good job. But then he stops and says, God chose me, and I don't know what to do about this. I just don't know how to get out of this job. Excellent. We have this tension here between him being stuck in it and trying to execute the duties of the office, but also being just exasperated by it. We hear him talking about, just before this, about how he feels like he is cursed to lead this people. It's this self-pity that we get from him that's uh, so powerful. He can't resign. No, he can't resign. That's right. That's absolutely right. What the firepans are going to do when you bring the firepans and you bring the incense, what would be... I don't understand where he says, and Adonai will choose. By what? By one is going to cast more smoke, one will gobble one up. I mean, what do you think the test is? Let's go there, 100%. Let's see exactly what it says there. Bert, you want to read a little more for us? I'm starting from 12. 12 through 15. And then we're going to Moses jump. Sent go ahead. Fadatan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come. Is it not enough that you brought us from a land flowing with milk and honey that's for us from a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness that you would also lord it over us? (laughs) Even if you had brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey and given us possession of fields and vineyards, should you gouge out those men's eyes? We will not come. Moses was much aggrieved, and he said to the Lord, Pay no regard to their oblation. I have not taken the ass of any one of them, nor have I wronged any one of them. Okay. So I just wanted that little piece before we jump ahead to the big finish to sort of lay out the fullness of this rebellion to see exactly how Datan and Aviram tie into Korach and his project. So um, we're going to jump ahead to verse 24. If you want, this is going to be another long chunk. Or verse 23. I'm gonna. I can read this one myself. 
We're going to go pretty much through the end of the chapter just to see the big finish here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the community and say, Withdraw from about the abodes of Korah, Datan, and Abiram. Moses rose and went to Datan and Abiram, the elders of Israel following him. He addressed the community saying, Move away from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be wiped out for all their sins. So they withdrew from the abodes of Korah, Datan, and Abiram. Now, Datan and Abiram had come out and they stood at the entrance of their tents with their wives and their children and their little ones. And Moses said, by this, you shall know it was the Lord who sent me to do all these things that they are not of my own devising. If these men die as all men do, if their lot should be the common fate of all mankind, it was not the Lord who sent me. But if the Lord brings something unheard of so that the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them that they and they go down alive into Sheol, you shall know that these men have spurned the Lord. Scarcely had he finished speaking all these words when the ground under them burst asunder and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households, all Korach's people and their possessions. They went alive... Um, down alive into Sheol with all that belonged to them. The earth closed over them and they vanished from the midst of the congregation. All Israel around them fled at their shrieks for they said, the earth might swallow us. And a fire went forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Wow. 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 Special effects. Big special effects. Yeah, you almost can't read this dramatically enough for what happens here. Just don't bring fire pit. (laughs) Yeah. We've seen that before. So, the JPS uh, academic commentary suggests what we've heard now from Robert, from Bert, that we're seeing something of a trajectory in Moses. We've now seen a shift in Moses. Moses has changed. Moses was the one who was the most humble. What has he done here now? Going back to verse 15, Moses says to God, pay no regard to their offering. Moses is telling God what offering to take and what offering not to take. That's pretty bold. Um, Listens to him. And what? God listens to him. And God listens to him. Then it gets even more bold. Moses then says that they're going to be killed by some unheard of thing. Moses is daring God to swallow them with the earth. Moses is not just saying to kill them. Moses has is specifying how God should be killing these people in this truly exceptional, yeah, unheard of way. Um, including their families and their innocent children. Including their families and their children. That it has to be this way that we haven't seen before in Torah in this way. Moses has dreamt this up of whole cloth and is daring God to do it. Contrast this with the Moses who went before Pharaoh, who was reluctant to go before Pharaoh and to ask for the people to be freed. The Moses who says that I'm, how am I going to speak for the people? How can I, uh, of afflicted speech, be the one who speaks for you, God, in your redemption? Well, this is a totally this, this is now a character who's daring God telling God what to do in the most out, unheard of fashion he says it here I'm telling God do this in the most unheard of way and God does it what's even more amazing to me is that it's not long since 
Moses, I mean, it's only one parashah back, mm-hmm. that he saves the people from God who's totally ticked off uh, and, and wants to wipe everybody out because uh, of the spy situation and start all over with Moses. That was... <coughs> It's supposed to mean something when something is really close. So within not too many pages, you've gone from one kind of Moses to another. So hold that thought. Continue with that. This is the second time I've said it to you because you're foreshadowing beautifully where we're going to go with this. Some of the complexity of what we're seeing here. Before we go to Moses as the savior of the people, I want to jump back to this point that Bert made previously. This is the second to last uh, incident we're going to see of Moses before we get Moses' final heresy. That piece where what happens in this in just a couple of chapters here, chapter 20, what happens? Right, God tells him that uh, he will bring water from the rock and that Moses, I think, should tell the people God will bring water from the rock and instead Moses hits the rock with a stick basically saying, it's me that's bringing the water, it's not God. And there's a lot of speculation that that was the reason he didn't get to go see, go to the promised land. God even, yeah, puts that right out there. It seems to be cause and effect that God says, in return for what you've done, um, you don't get to go to the promised land. You aren't going to be the one who leads the people there. But that doesn't pop out, I think the point you're making is that doesn't pop out of nowhere. That doesn't pop out of nowhere. There's an evolution to that point where Moses is changing. That's exactly the point I'm trying to suggest. I'm suggesting this incident here where Korah managed to perfectly put his finger on exactly Moses' flaw and exactly where Moses was falling short, essentially pushed Moses over the edge. Mm -hmm. That we have Korach deftly, in a very skilled way, attacking Moses' very vulnerability. That Moses is the most humble and he has to exist in the greatest of leadership. And Korach has managed to expose, to tear open um, Moses' inability to reconcile those things in his own self, in his own soul, in his own psyche. And what does Moses do? Well, it seems to push him over the edge. Moses then takes the most power that we've seen out of him. Moses conjures up this unheard of execution for all of these people and dares God to do it. We've just seen Moses cross the bridge. Moses is no longer, in many ways, that figure who was the most humble, the most, um, yeah, comes out of the greatest humility. Moses is transformed. Moses has just become the one who, when God says, uh, there's this rock, you all need water, speak to this rock, and there will be water for you. And Moses, publicly, in front of everybody, says, I'm going to strike it because I'm the power here, not God. Moses has crossed the bridge right here. This is a transformation in Moses we're seeing that is uh, it's huge. <clears throat> it's bigger than huge. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a sea change in that way, uh, in the greatest of the prophets, the greatest of the leaders that we would have. In some ways, um, the greatest prophet has fallen. Now, we can't say that Moses is the ultimate dictator, though. This is to Robert's point. He still serves the people, and he still serves God. He's not completely lost in the whole endeavor. Moses could have said, all right, 
execute these people. He could have called upon the elders of Israel who seem to still be on his side, still be part of this whole drama that we have unfolding in front of us, and said, all right, kill these people. He's still very clear that he's doing this in service of God and with connection to God. And, as Robert said, there's still a great deal of of Rahmanus with it. There's still a great deal of mercy with him. He's still looking out for the people, even from this lofty perch, even with having lost some of his humility. He still is connected to this divine purpose that he's serving. He's still connected to this role. He's still trying to execute the duties of the office, even as the office seems to be consuming him. It's a remarkable thing, and this is why I think we still talk about him as the greatest of, of leaders, the greatest of prophets who speaks to God, Panim El Panim. Never again would there rise a prophet like Moses. Even when he's being consumed by the role that he's carrying out, he's still trying to care for the people, and he's still trying to serve God. Yeah. It seems to be the theme of the Torah that all of our patriarchs and all of our Prophet. Nobody's perfect, and so we shouldn't attempt to be perfect or view perfection as some goal. Right. All flawed. It's a, it's a fact of humanity. That's right. We. I know that Rabbi Bernstein speaks to this theme. I do too. That it's crucial that Moses is flawed. Uh, that we don't look to a figure of perfection. We don't have a son of God or a Christos or that kind of figure we turn to, that kind of perfection that we uh, follow. Our greatest leader, this is in some ways a really pained passage to read if you're going to read it this way, that we just saw the fall of our greatest leader. Um, We see the collapse of his humility. that he in some ways is consumed by this power that he's wielding. He can't wield the greatest power with the greatest justice. He's not capable of it. Yeah. Um, if you believe in Machiavellian theory, mm-hmm. power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, then it's impossible for anyone to be not flawed given this much power. Right. And if, if I think it's bringing Machiavelli to this uh, conversation, I think is a great way to think about this. Um, that, yes, power does have that ability. There is that aspect to power. Yeah. I think that this kind of a thing is one of the great gifts of Judaism. Mm-hmm. It's because all of us have problems of one kind or another. And you're not aiming to be perfect mm-hmm. because it's impossible to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Here, I think that's absolutely right. We are not enjoined to. We are not. It's not incumbent upon us to be perfect because there, there, there isn't perfection to become as human beings. Um, that ours is a tradition that understands and even in some ways embraces that. Yeah. And the reality is, people are. Each person is not all good mm-hmm. or all bad. That's right. Parts of ourselves. It's, there are mm-hmm. parts of ourselves who could go this way mm-hmm. or could go that way, and how we manage ourselves mm-hmm. leads us leads us <coughs> down a down a path. Mm-hmm. Not maybe you know, and we don't know. And to go in that direction of Machiavelli, the nature of power can actually change us in terms of who we are um, in our most essential selves. To take uh, Benny Kajit in citing Carl Jung, uh, this inability to be in touch with the shadow, with the pieces of ourselves that we would just as soon not see, that we don't 
want to encounter, the pieces that we want to compartmentalize because they're really painful to look at, to have that interact with great power, ooh, there's a toxic uh, convergence of circumstances to uh, not to go down that road, but to think in contemporary um, idioms about it and to think about some of the world around us, to have the pieces which we ourselves cannot access within ourselves that that are too much for us to even encounter and have that then mix with power. Go ahead, Bert. I think this, this also says a lot about the concept of God in the Torah. Because we tend to think, and I think, again, growing up in, in basically a Christian country, God being all-powerful, God being totally perfect, God being unchangeable, mm-hmm. that's not at all what we're seeing here. Right. We're seeing Moses convincing God to do something that we might have questions about. Mm. You know, where is the Adonai, Adonai, God of, of compassion? <clears throat> And love mm-hmm. is is not there in this in this particular case. So it's it's a whole other long discussion. But I would submit this says a lot about what God is like and what our you know. And you talk about people not being perfect. Then that gets to the point: is God perfect, or is the perfection of God something that is not just you know, a whiteboard. It's not something that's just all good. The other thing I was going to say that's always seemed strange to me, the Psalms are attributed to, supposedly David wrote them all, but at the beginning of them it says a Psalm of David or, or whatever. There are Psalms that we accept as part of our liturgy that says they're songs of the sons of Korah. Mm-hmm. Which has always seemed to be strange because I thought Korah was, you know, the ultimate devil here of a person we didn't want. So we get these vestiges of Korah and the priesthood, and again, some of that serves as indicator to some kind of a power struggle in which um, one set of rebels were defeated within the priestly enterprise, and yet they are also reintegrated back into it. We'll hold that, but I want to go go back to your previous point about the role of God in all of this. here we have a situation in which it seems that God is content to let it play out a few rounds. God is not intervening um, directly. God is sort of letting Moses and Korah <laughs> play this thing out, and then God in some ways comes back in at the end, functioning in a way that Moses has really set out. Moses has really laid the whole trap, laid all the groundwork, set the next several steps of this thing, and God, and it just plays out essentially. Um, just to say. Uh, go ahead. Would you conclude that God is thinking you're not the guy to lead the people? You're you're rolling out. You're you're done. You've been great. You got us where we are. Maybe. But you're just not the guy. And I, Caleb and Joshua, are the guys to start the new Jewish life. Maybe. I think uh, that's entirely possible. I think in some ways Moses is demonstrating that he's not the guy to lead the people to us, to the people, to God. I don't. Moses is beginning to fall apart. We see. Yes, the power is corrupting Moses. To hold on that God point just a moment longer. Uh, in some ways, it makes me think about the way in which 
Uh, people ask, where was God during this event or that event? That's a very contemporary question to ask. And a reconstructionist answer would be that God is in the places that you look for God and that you seek God out and that you find God. Sometimes in the greatest darknesses, um, those are not the places you find God. Um, when you find salvation and you find goodness, those are the places in which you access God. And this is an idea that it's not looking at God as an actor who comes down and, you know, schmices people for doing it right or wrong or whatever, but that God is uh, the process that makes for salvation in Kaplanian terms. That when something is uh, arcs us toward goodness, we would call that salvation. We would call that godly in that way. What we're having, what if you want to look at this exchange between Moses and Korach, in some ways God maybe is pulling these levers, or actually, no, that's not how I want to say that. Maybe some of these punishments are coming about by divine means, but perhaps in Reconstructionist thinking, God is actually pretty far away from this political Machiavellian um, challenge, this rebellion that we're seeing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, we, we know from last week that God has chosen Joshua and Caleb to lead the people into the promised land. And if, in fact... Through the uh, through uh, the fact of Moses going over the edge, God is sort of like finalizing his conclusion that okay, uh, this might he might not be the one. Mm-hmm. Then that doesn't seem to explain why he then goes along with Moses's rather extreme punishment. Why does he go along? Who, Joshua? No, why does God go along? Why does God go along with it? I mean, if it's, you know, God sees that, okay, this is is a little over the top, Mm -hmm. but I'll do it anyway. I mean, what's that, I mean, what's that all? So I would say in some ways this speaks to the tension that we have throughout Torah, but most specifically in Exodus, that, yeah, God delivers the people from Egypt from slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and yet they have to take those first steps into the sea for it to part. They have to be the ones to set up um, judges and rulers over uh, courts, over people. We have to be partners with God in this whole business of revelation right. of Yetziat Mitzrayim. God's not going to do it by God's self. I understand, but God does not, but God does not have to be a party to this extreme form of punishment. So... Maybe, perhaps, for the people to transition in this leadership, they have to see that, okay, Moses hasn't lost God. It's not like King Saul, where King Saul is anointed, the is coronated the king of the Israelites and loses it. And we see King Saul lose it and lose his mind over evil spirits and all kinds of stuff and try and kill King David. We see King Saul fall apart. Um, Maybe Moses' fall isn't meant to be like that of King Saul, but maybe it is supposed to be something in which the people are involved. That has to be a more public thing um, that can't just happen behind closed doors. That we have to see Moses hasn't totally lost God's connection and the holiness and the divinity to it. Is it possible then that, uh, that, that this is all part of a plan to make the people more willing to let go of Moses? That's one reading. That's certainly one reading, is that it has to be a gentle progression by which the people... Because now now presumably you're going to have a whole bunch of people having seen what they've just seen, saying, uh, whoa, is this 
really something is a mess here. Yeah. Something's a bit off. Yeah. And maybe we should be willing to follow a new leader. Joshua and Caleb. Perhaps it's part of having an amicable breakup with but Moses. Moses is the one who comes up with this hideous way of getting rid of his enemies. And God plays along. God doesn't obviously doesn't have to do what Moses wants right. to do. Right? So God is an active participant. I mean that well that's the plain reading. I mean I'm just going by the plain reading of the text. God is part of this. God is pretty active. He's active. <laughs> so he must have wanted the end where Moses no longer leads. Otherwise you can't come to Caleb and Joshua without God being an activist. It depends on your theology. It depends a lot on whether you want to read God as sort of the puppet master pulling all of the strings, or you want to read God as much as that that power that makes for salvation, and it's so incumbent upon people and their agency to tap into godliness. It depends greatly on your theology how it is how you slice God and God's role here. I want to suggest there's room for both readings in this. Yeah, Robert, and then John. Well, I was going to say this is sort of simplistic, but mm-hmm. as a practical matter, unless I've lost track of time, there's uh, 30, as many as 38 years left, or 37 years mm-hmm. left, roughly, mm-hmm. until they get to the promised land. They started out... We got a lot of time. <laughs> there's a lot of time. Who's going to lead these people around for... 38 years, mm-hmm. even if the decision is made 37 years or 38 years from now, it won't be Moses. So it's another great reading, perhaps a piece of why we're getting this sort of strange, you know, God going along with it, but we see Moses sort of falling apart, it has to do with the fact that Moses isn't done yet. Moses still has a role to play. Moses still has, there's still work to be done. Um, we're not done with this piece of the story. Two more points and then we're going to... I'm Doreen. Yes, Doreen. Um, if I were one of the people standing there watching this, I think I would be very fearful of God. Mm. I, it seems to me sure. that God killing innocents makes God a little suspect in my mind as well. Now, I know that's a modern interpretation, mm-hmm. but to me, I'm scared of everyone now. <laughs> really. You know, I'm not trusting Croft, I'm not trusting Moses, I'm not trusting God. I'm not sure where to go for the next 38 years. So, in the ancient Israelite imagination, the relationship with God was that God was no Ra. There was Yir Ah. There's this idea that God is awesome in a way that is both good and both terrifying. That it's all of that all wrapped up together. I think you very rightly uplift that aspect of what it is to be God-fearing in contemporary language. Um, that it is awesome for both the good and the bad. I think that's absolutely right. Um, Lisa, did you want to... Oh, okay. I thought I saw it. So, one other piece here, if we're going to stick with the shadow and end with that. Um, my friend Benny talks about one thing that's really important is this sort of self 
examination. He calls it perhaps it's an internal ingathering of the exiles. Perhaps that returning to oneself, if we were to put it in Jewish language, is coming back from exile to yourself in a way. Perhaps the ingathering of exiles is not something that happens between Babylonia and Persia and the land of Israel or the diaspora over in Europe or something. Maybe the ingathering of exiles is what we can do within our own souls, within our own psyches, in facing those edges of ourselves, those rough edges that are difficult to hold, that are um, challenging for us. Perhaps that ingathering of exiles, going through that process of self-reflection, is something that can help us be more just in the ways that we wield power, in fact. What we see here, what goes off the rails seems to be Moses' disconnect between what he can't face in himself internally with an external political challenge. He then acts out of that place trying to preserve that self-understanding, that peace that he can't confront, um, and he employs all the power at his disposal to preserve it. Perhaps there's a word here about what it means to exercise power justly, that to use power justly requires not just a careful examination of the external circumstances, but pretty constant reflection within ourselves and what we bring to it. Perhaps there's a piece within that that can serve, if not a uh, barrier to the kind of corruption that Machiavelli speaks to, at least can uh, temper it a little bit, that if we're going to use power justly, we have to pay attention to that in of exiles in ourselves. We have to be willing to, to look at and to hold with some Rahmanis, with some compassion, the pieces of ourselves that are broken, the pieces of ourselves that perhaps we don't admire, perhaps we don't uh, celebrate in that way, and yet they're part of us. It's that in gathering of the exiles, uh, incorporating the pieces of ourselves that are human, that may be sort of broken, that may not be what we admire about ourselves with the positive, with the ethical, with the ways in which we do serve holiness in this world, bringing those together with some degree of uh, honesty and compassion that perhaps is the work for each one of us in this world. Perhaps there's a piece within Korach uh, that Korach is sort of an external factor, this thing that's trying to tell us that sometimes we need to look inward when we're trying to figure out how to be our most just in our best selves, acting outward in ways that reflect holiness and righteousness. So special thanks to Dr. Benny Kajin, and special thanks to all of you for taking part in the conversation today. And with that, I'll wish you all a Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.